Hello and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, I want to turn today to a, a recent column of yours exploring why the United States is something of an aberration in being a successful multiracial, multiethnic society. We sort of take this diversity as our strength notion as a, as a shibboleth now, but you point out that historically that statement has really rarely been true for most societies. So, so why don't we start there? Give us a sense of the stability or I guess lack thereof that we've seen historically when people try to cobble together multi-ethnic societies. Well, usually when they try to uh, make a nation or a state from different widely different religions and especially racial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds. It, it doesn't work very well. And we see that in the modern world with Iraq or Lebanon or the former Yugoslavia or Rwanda. But in the ancient world, in the medieval world, in the, the early modern world, the only way it really worked was um, through massive state coercion, the Soviet Union, for example, or the Ottomans or the Roman Empire. In other words, they forced people, if they wanted to have their own unique culture, they destroyed the temple at Jerusalem in the case of Rome. Or the Soviets just simply wiped out people. As the, and the Ottomans had pretty coercive, coercive measures as well. It's partly it's because of human nature. I mean, in most people's vocabulary, uh, there is a word for somebody not of the same race. In Armenian, it's an Odar, Goyim in, in Hebrew. Uh, Gaijin in J Japanese. Um, gringo is actually a term from 18th century Castilian Spain. It's a corruption of Greco, meaning people who sp speak as if they're speaking Greek. In other words, they're unfathomable. So this country didn't follow the, the normal trajectory. That is, when it was founded by largely European settlers, then the logical um, – pathway would be something like Europe today or something like um, Mexico. Mexico's constitution says that immigration shall not alter the demographic reality of Mexico. A Mexican citizen today could not go to Japan or China and be fully accepted. Chinese, Korean, Japanese person could not say, I want to be a Mexican citizen and move to Mexico City and be fully uh, accepted as such. But we we took a, a strange pathway. So the logic of the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, was that your superficial appearance would not predicate your status as a citizen. I know that all people flocked together, and there was racism, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, where we are today is a natural evolution of the Constitution, meaning that we look at our content of our character rather than the color of our skin. Now – in the late, I think in the late 20th century, that was somewhat altered. Uh, by what? That was actually going to be my next question for you. Yeah. So what, what happened? You pinpoint this in your piece. Is sometime in the late 20th century, America largely gave up on multiracialism and opted instead for multiculturalism. What are there certain strands of American behavior that you would point to as being indicative of the change? Yeah, I think so. I think that in the 60s, we were far different, far distant, as a better word perhaps, from the 1930 depression, 30s depression and World War II. And we raised an affluent leisure generation who said basically if America is not perfect, it's not good. And then it decided that mostly an elite white establishment decided that they were going to pay 
reparations of a sort, whether it was affirmative action or set-asides or quotas or collective guilt, rather than the older model of steadily being assimilated, integrated, intermarried. And the result was that we created the idea of a victim who had uh, collective grievances against the body politic, whether and so hyphenation, accented first names, uh, particular groups, La Raza, all of these groups emerge as if they could be part of the whole. That is, nobody wants diversity based on skin color or national heritage when it's a problem of brain surgery. You want merit. But in the university, it wasn't so. And then secondly, the democratic and liberal establishment, with some help from the Chamber of Commerce, the Wall Street Journal people, thought that open borders and changing demography would be good. In the case of the latter conservatives, it would provide cheap labor in the case of liberals, it would change the blue-red state equilibrium, especially in the American Southwest, and it has done that. And the result is that the melting pot was considered passe, the salad bowl, without any historical knowledge of the, where that would lead to, became the norm. And now we have, I think, a series of tribes in America all competing uh, with grievances. We talk about fairly often on this podcast, the problems that emerge when policymakers sort of operate in opposition to or in ignorance of human nature. When you talk about that sort of tribalism, is there – to your mind, is there sort of an inherent human yearning to get past that sort of tribalism? Is is unity uh, sort of a natural urge that runs up against this this fracturing that's happening right now. You know, I wish it were true, but I think tribalism and diversity are the more common human mm. traits. In other words, people are like others in the animal kingdom. They like they feel more familiar. And uh, I think just today, China announced that only uh, Chinese women could only marry other Chinese. So. What was unique about America was it went against human nature in a sense. It said, you know what, we're not limited or we're not doomed to follow our tribe. That if you're Mexican-American, Shakespeare can be yours just as much if you're British or if you're uh, Anglo-Saxon heritage, Langston Hughes can be your poet too. That was a very radical notion and I think America was was – you know, trying to do something that had never been attempted. Maybe in the last couple of centuries of the Roman Empire it had, but that simply didn't work. You say in this piece that uh, America thrived when immigration was controlled, measured, and coupled with a confident approach to assimilation. That phrase is interesting to me. Explain what a confident approach to assimilation looks like, Victor. Well, to assimilate somebody from Honduras or the United States uh, or Mexico into the United States, you have to assume that they're leaving for a reason. That is, I know there's emotion involved, and people wave the flag under no circumstances they would like to return to, and they and they burn or they trash the flag under no circumstances they would like to leave the country of which. But all that aside, people leave for a reason. And the host should understand that. And then the host has a responsibility to say, you are leaving Oaxaca, Mexico because it's racist, its economy doesn't work, it's class-bound, it's corrupt. You're coming to the United States, and if you don't assimilate or integrate, but you you bring with you the same cultural attitudes about core values. We're not talking about food or fashion or music, but core values – 
uh, judiciary, legislative, executive government and the economy and the sociology of the United States. If you don't change, then by needs, you know, Parler California will look like Oaxaca. So we're going to tell you to change and you're going to become American. And so if you were Italian, you if your name was Cuomo, your name was Giuliani, we had no idea what politics you would be, what you were just going to become an American. There would be no Italian studies program, no La Raza with two Zs, uh, therapeutic, chauvinistic notions like that. But again, in the 60s, we, the host, lost confidence. And so we allowed this multiculturalism, largely as a, as a manifestation of careerist in journalism, government, the media, uh, the university, who saw that they could be self-appointed collective representatives for new groups that were coming to the United States that didn't obtain instant parity. Well, to that point, it seems like the fetish for multiculturalism is substantially more pronounced in elite precincts than it is amongst amongst the common man. If, if you if you agree with that, I don't know if you do, but uh, to to what do you attribute? That? No, I do. I do very much. I think it's uh, because it becomes an abstraction. So, if a Wall Street Journal columnist or Jeb Bush says that illegal immigration is an act of love. What does that mean exactly? Does that mean Jeb moves to Fresno and he puts his kids in, you know, Edison High School and they go to school where one quarter of the population doesn't speak English and there is no AP Chinese um, and there's gang members and people come to school with tattoos and they come to school as they, they did in Oaxaca? No, he doesn't want to do that. It wouldn't be fair to his children. Or does that mean that a writer for the Wall Street Journal gets up in the morning and he wants to live in a community where he may be hit in an auto accident? 50% of all auto accidents in Los Angeles are hit and run, about a little higher number in Fresno County. Does that mean that he wants to be hit by a driver who leaves the scene of the accident with no insurance, registration, or license? No. But it sounds good. It makes him feel good in the New York-Washington corridor that he's magnanimous at somebody else's expense. So they assume they never have to suffer the consequences of their own ideology. And it really is a class thing, and that's what explains Trump. Trump appeals to people who illegal immigration hits firsthand. You say in this piece towards the conclusion, uh, for those who see America becoming a multicultural state of unassimilated tribes and competing racial groups, history will not be kind. The history of state multiculturalism is one of discord, violence, chaos, and implosion. So, Victor, play that forward for us in the American context. I mean all Americans who are alive today basically um, exist with sort of a sense of – I think at some level a sense of permanence about – what America is. They are like that kind of discord couldn't happen here. What does this look like, though, if this trend continues undiminished? Well, it looks like something like Rwanda or Serbia or Bosnia. I mean, on one hand, popular culture is still assimilating and integrating people. Intermarriage is at all time high. We all have families, my family, where we don't know who's what. Um, and we're doing with Latino, Hispanics, African Americans, Asians, what we used to do with. Poles and Czechs and Scandinavians, they're all becoming mixed up. But it's proceeding at a slower rate. Immigration is increasing at, at unprecedented numbers. One out of every four Californians was not based uh, – was not born in the United States. And then the rewards career-wise are all with the separatist multicultural paradigm, not with the assimilists. So assimilationists. So what's happened 
um, people find it convenient and valuable to uh, be with their own tribe. So I'll give you one example. Barack Obama had some rappers at the White House. Um, and what three of them, I'll just take three, there were more. One of them was currently, was subsequently arrested for pimping. Second one just put out an album cover where there was a dead white judge with X's on his eyes on the White House lawn and African-American youth were celebrating his demise. And the third one had an ankle bracelet that went off during the White House. So they were picked partly because of their edginess, their lyrics. If you looked at the lyrics of their rap songs, it was basically attack the police, misogynist, anti-white. And yet Obama thinks that's cool to be on the edge in that sense. And we have this problem with Donald Trump needlessly getting into this Trump University fiasco. But as always is true with Trump, by accident, some truth emerges that Judge Curiel is a member of La Raza Lawyers Group. What does La Raza mean? It means race. It's not Pueblo. It's not gente. It's a deliberate selection of a word that defines the racial essence of something in the way that Volk does. So I would like to ask Judge Curiel, why don't you just belong to the Mexican-American, Irish-American, Greek-American sort of lawyers association? Or why don't you use the word Pueblo? Why does your group have to use the word Raza in the way that Franco and Mussolini both use those terms? And Hitler used the term Volk. And yet that what I just said would be defined as offensive, xenophobic, nativist. So I'm not confident. I, I feel that we're going to have to play this out to its ultimate logic where each group uh, claims pre precedence by virtue of its racial essence. And that's it's a prescription to suicide. So what Trump is appealing to, he's saying to the white working class, it's OK now to identify and to be have a solidarity because you know what? Black Lives Matter is not all lives matter. They don't want all lives matter. La Raza does not like, there is a National Council of La Raza. And nobody objects to the use of that word. So you're going to have to find your own identity. And I'm here, I'm basically a guy that represents you as well. And then the left is kind of dumbfounded. This is racist. This is sexist. But all Trump is doing is appealing to the same instincts that the left has found so lucrative, and politically speaking, in the last four decades. So the last thing I'll ask you on this is: there any is there any sort of policy remedy to this, or is this really a culture that needs to do the work of self repair? I think it has to be self repair. Barack Obama had been a Condoleezza Rice or a Colin Powell figure where race was incidental to his essence. Um, then we wouldn't have had a problem. But when you have the president of the United States, as I said, bringing in rappers that have that volatile provocative history and you use vocabulary in the campaign and during your administration as nation of cowards in the case of Eric Holder, uh, my people, punish your enemies, get in their face, take a gun to a knife fight, typical white person, clingers, I could go on but I won't. Uh, it sets a tone, it sets a message that you better find a tribal affiliation so that you don't get out trumped in the job, in admittance in general culture by someone else and that's what's happening and what people are scared about in Europe, in the United States especially is that the, the so-called white majority is starting to emulate the uh, political uh, strategies and agendas of, of minorities and they're not 30% of the population they're, they're nearly 70% so 
that's part of the legacy of Barack Obama. He created – he's Dr. Frankenstein and Trump is his monster. All right. That's all the time that we have for today. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, you can stop by hoover.org to read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.